0: What a privilege we have to be able to gather together and uh, fellowship and worship and study God's Word. And uh, so this morning, as Cornell said, we're just going to jump into a very brief study, it's just four weeks, on the church. And uh, there's, a, there's a handout there. Um, the uh, notes are all going to be there for you. I thought I'd uh, reproduce those for you and make sure that you have those for a couple of reasons. One is you're going to be able to see where we're going and how we're going to get there through our little study. Um, also... This is a study that uh, originally was around seven or eight weeks, and uh, so to to fit it into four, I've uh, just sort of condensed it down and boiled it down into a a briefer form as uh, you have in your hands and so it's uh if we don't get through everything on a given sunday you're going to have the notes and um so what's going to happen is as you take these class notes out the door at the end of the day whatever we didn't cover will sort of beautifully and mystically and magically as you walk out the door turn into homework okay so no, it's summertime, so you don't have to see this as homework. But uh, anyway, you'll have it, and uh, if you are not able to come on a certain Sunday, you'll still have the notes and be able to follow along in that way. But what we're going to do this morning is take a look at the church, and uh, it's obvious that I'm following along one of the metaphors that is in Scripture for the church, and that is of a building. And so we're going to, this first week, we're going to see the Master Builder's plan and his people as we look at Matthew chapter 16 and also Matthew... Matthew chapter 28. And then we're going to look at the proclamation and the progress as the church, through the book of Acts, moves out and begins to reach out to the world according to the promise that Jesus himself makes in Matthew chapter 16, that he will build his church, as we're going to see. And then on, on weeks three and four, we're going to see the four purposes of the church. And those purposes are worship, transformation, fellowship, and witness. We're going to look at the book of Romans for three of those, and then finally back to the book of Acts chapter 10 for the witness. And so it's going to be a bit of a whirlwind trip. There's an awful lot here. It originally was not designed to be a, um, a fully-orbed, systematic ecclesiology. That would take many, many more weeks, but it's designed to take a study like that and sort of boil it down to the essentials, okay? So, uh, and really it was produced initially to uh, be able to use, with a group of people who might want to like plant a church, and uh, rather than uh, have the uh, very ubiquitous and uh, common philosophy of church plant that is commonly known as the uh, seeker-sensitive movement, which is essentially a man-centered uh, church planting program and has been for about 45 years, this gets down to what the Bible says about what God's plan is for his church and how to do it. So it was initially designed to be something you could take to uh, uh, like three or four families who might want to plant a church, who might be wanting to know how to go about doing it, and rather collect all of the man-centered opinions that would would be there. You could actually lay this out and show them what the Bible has to say about it, which is the only way to do it, so that you could be doing God's work God's way. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. It's a very uh, brief study of the God's plan for the church, and then we're going to look at these Four core purposes of the church, okay? And uh, hopefully there'll be some time at the end for some questions. If not, we'll, we'll try to work them in next time, and um, that way we'll uh, we'll cover all of the material. So why don't we commit our time to our Lord and ask his blessing on it, and then we'll just jump into our study. Father, thank you for this opportunity that we have to gather together. We know that in time space, history. You have ordained that we would be here today. And so we are grateful for that. We know it is by your grace that you have brought us together. All things are by your grace. And uh, we pray that you would lead us through our study here in your word, by your spirit, that you would make things clear as we move through. Help us to understand your great plan for your church and how we are to participate in it. And we just thank you in the name of our great Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, in the Bible, as you probably well know, in order to communicate God's relationship to his people, uh, there are many um, metaphors used, figures, and the Bible is very rich in figures and that type of thing. And, uh, of course, one of them, very familiar, would be picturing God's people as a flock, like a flock of sheep. And God being, of course, the Good Shepherd. This comes right out of the Old Testament, as you know. And in <clears> this <throat> right into the New Testament, Jesus in John 10 speaks of himself as being the Good Shepherd. That's the Good Shepherd uh, chapter. This is built right off of Psalm 23 and what the Old Testament has to say. Um, God's people are also pictured as citizens, citizens of a new nation, uh, citizens of a kingdom under King Jesus. Paul reminded the Colossian believers of that truth in Colossians 1.13 when he said, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. The Bible also pictures not only believers, but all people, okay? Here's a relevant one, as slaves. All people are slaves. Paul in Ephesians 2 said that unbelievers are slaves of Satan, sin, and the world system. But believers in Jesus Christ are said to be slaves of Jesus Christ, set free from the bondage of sin to serve a new master. But the key thing there is everybody's a slave. We just serve different masters. Apostle Paul uses the military theme. Of course, they would have been very familiar with the the Roman soldiers that were there occupying them, and the the uh, the garb of the Roman soldier: the helmet, the shield, the 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 breastplate, and all of that. And as we know, very familiar from Ephesians six, Paul uses that to to encourage believers to put on the whole armor of God. And so he's playing off of that imagery. And um, agriculture is also used in Scripture we are seen uh, uh, taking God's Word and breaking up the hard, rocky ground of unbelief as the Word moves out, and uh, of planting the seed of the Word and broadcasting that seed widely. And we know that that seed then lands on various kinds of soil, but it is God who gives the harvest. And when the harvest stands, then that harvest of souls can take place, and it's God who gives the harvest. So farmers are pictured there okay? Farmers, the second oldest profession in the world, all right? The first, of course, being preachers. Everybody knows that. Some of the disciples were actually fishermen. I'm just kidding about that. Jim might see this later on, okay? Just kidding. I heard that someplace. Some of the disciples, as you know, were actually fishermen. And of course, our Lord, when he calls them to himself, he says, follow me and I will make you fishers for the souls of men. He uses that imagery that would have been very familiar to them. Uh, perhaps three of the most familiar metaphors used in Scripture are the bride, the body, and the building. The bride may be the most beautiful one where Jesus is pictured as the bridegroom who sacrificially gives his life for his church, and then he nurtures and cares for and provides for the bride, the body of Christ. And again, speaking of the body, Paul really develops this metaphor uh throughout the New Testament. Romans, 1 Corinthians, Ephesians, Colossians. Christ is the head of the body, and so the human body is used to picture the church, Christ being the head, and all the various parts are are controlled by the head and all play an important part, whether you are a hand, a foot, an ear, or whatever. Every single part of the body is important, plays a very important part, and it's the head that brings them all together to serve within the body as they function together. But the New Testament also uses the image of a building coming off of the Old Testament concept of the the temple, and, of course, as we have seen from our study of Hebrews, going clear back to the tabernacle in the wilderness, that place that God ordained would be a place where sinful man could come and fellowship with him and worship him on God's terms. First the tabernacle in the wilderness, then Solomon's temple, and then later on, of course, in the second temple. But when God became incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ, that Old Testament system, which pointed to him, passed away, and the church is then spoken of as the dwelling place of God. Paul says to Timothy and First Timothy, as he sends him out to set things in order in Ephesus, he said, uh, he calls it the household of God, the household of God. That's the church. And that's the metaphor we're going to follow in our study as we look at the church, God's divine construction project. And the first thing we're going to see from Matthew chapter 16, where I invite you to turn in your Bibles, is the master builder's plan. The master builder's plan. If you're going to build a building, and you builders know this, you have to build a foundation. And foundations are important. In fact, they're critical. And they're also something you don't often think about. We don't often think about the foundation of this building. Um, but this building, of course, is sitting on a solid foundation. Even the structural steel, you can see how it was in some ways uh, shaped this building, but if you were ever to see some of the calculations the engineers had to do, to even calculate the wind shear on the side of a building, the lateral forces, even of a 20 or 30 mile an hour wind, are tremendous, and so you have to take great care in designing a building, especially here in snow country, they have to take into account snow loads and wind shear and all kinds of things, and uh, this is not even hurricane or tornado country, praise the Lord. But the foundation of a building is critical, and so is the foundation of the church. So what we're going to look at this morning is the master builder's plan, and then on page 2, we're going to go through the opposition, the foundation, the architect, the builder, and then we're going to see the residence from Matthew chapter 16. What we see, first of all, is the opposition. This opposition had been going on for quite some time by the time we get to Matthew chapter 16. Remember, Matthew's purpose in his gospel account of the life of Christ is to prove to his Jewish audience that Jesus is their Messiah, that he is the rightful king of Israel, and that is exactly what he does. He opens right up with a genealogy that fulfills, demonstrates the fulfillment of the part of the Abrahamic covenant that promises the seed. The Abrahamic covenant, all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, promised three basic elements to the Jewish people, to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all of their descendants, land, seed, and blessing. And that seed promise to Abraham was that there is going to be descendants from whom is going to come a special person called the seed. This, of course, goes clear back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the first promise of the seed. And so Matthew opens up his gospel account right out of the starting blocks by looking back toward the Abrahamic covenant. Abraham is is told to look forward. Now, from your perspective, I should go this way, that there's going to be a seed. He can't see who that's going to be. But by the time we get to Matthew's account, Matthew simply says the genealogy of Jesus Christ, and it's kind of connect the dots, son of David, son of Abraham, and right there you have the fulfillment of the seed promise of the Abrahamic covenant by Matthew to set the stage for the rest of the gospel account. At his baptism in Matthew 3, his father endorses him as my beloved son, and, of course, don't miss the fact that in that passage and many of the rest of these, we have the Trinitarian formula. The Spirit is there. The Father is there. The Son is there. We have a Trinitarian salvation. And we have a Trinitarian church because we have a Trinitarian God. In chapter 4 of Matthew, his temptation in the wilderness also validated his deity and the fact that he was exactly who the prophets predicted would come. He performs a series of undeniable miracles that serve as signs validating his words and his claims to be the Messiah in chapters 8 and 9. The whole time, the rejection by the scribes and the Pharisees is building up. They hate him, they are hearing him's teaching. These are the spiritual elite, and they are they are not only uh, uh, in denial of who he is, they're threatened by who he is, and he is exactly who he says he is. By the time we reach chapter 12, their anger, their rejection is at a fever pitch to the point that they pronounce his miracles, which they never denied. They couldn't deny them They were objectively verifiable. They pronounced him to be the work of Satan. And Jesus pronounces judgment on them. By the time you get to chapter 12, verse 34, for all intents and purposes, for that generation of people, it is over. And they are now under the judgment of God. Chapter 13, of course, he teaches in parables, which is designed to to prohibit unbelievers from understanding, but to reveal the truth to believers. Very interesting. And in chapter 14, Jesus withdraws from Galilee, taking his disciples up into the north country, to begin to teach them about his impending rejection his, uh, and his death on the cross. He takes them up to Caesarea Philippi. So in Matthew 16.1, we see the opposition still at a fever pitch, and the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, "'When it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red.' And in the morning it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. And here he really pulls out the old sword of the spirit, razor sharp, and lacerates them. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. The opposition, they tried to test him. He called them evil and adulterous. The issue was, as we'll see in this next passage, their teaching. In verse 5 through 12, he begins to warn the disciples about the the Pharisees, and he calls their teaching leaven. They don't quite get it until the end in verse 12. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They were false teachers, they were apostates, and what they taught the people, the Jews, was not the truth. And when Jesus came along, he did tell them the truth, and he warns them to, to stay clear, stay away from what these people are teaching. Well, that brings us to verse 13, and we're going to see the foundation of the church. In verse 13, he has departed. He's taken his disciples all the way up to Caesarea Philippi. This is not the Caesarea on the coast where Paul was taken when he was under arrest. You remember that story in the book of Acts. This is a town that is about 25 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee and about 100 miles north of Jerusalem, so it's way up in the north. He does that to get them apart so he can begin to teach them about his impending death as he moves then back down for the last time, to Jerusalem, and his date with the cross. And so he says in verse 13, it says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. This is not to be uh, unexpected. Men do not have the answer for who Jesus is. And uh, the question really does set up the answer. He's not asking him this question because he doesn't know the answer. He knows everything. He's setting up the, he asks the question in order to set up the opportunity to teach them what follows. And so <clears throat> this question is simply a way to get them to think about this. And men don't have the answer. He has all of the data. He wants them to think about who he is. Who do men say that I am? And they're all over the map with who they say he is. And then he says in verse 15, but who do you say that I am? And this is what he's getting after. This question with the you there, uh, grammatically, that is emphatic. That's, that's in the emphatic position. It's also plural. So in other words, he's basically saying, all of you, who do you say that I am? And Peter's answer is is for himself, but it is also for all the rest of the disciples. And it really is an answer for all of the rest of the church for all time. The monumental statement is here. This is what Jesus is really going after by asking this question. Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon bar Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Matthew's use of Peter's full name uh, is the only use of his full name in the Gospel of Matthew. And it highlights how significant this confession is. Peter says, you are the Christ. This is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Mashiach, which means to, to anoint or to be smear, as they would do with oil when they would anoint the new king. The the transliterated form, of course, we often hear is Messiah. You are the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah of Israel, the anointed king of the Jews, the rightful heir to the throne of David. And he further defines who he is by adding the son of the living God. This is really important. It's a very specific reference to Jesus' deity. One commentator says this, Peter further defines Jesus as the son of the living God. This is a more definite identification of Jesus as deity than God's son or a son of God. Those title forms leave a question open about the sense in which Jesus was God's son. The Jews often describe their God as the living God, the contrast being with dead idols. By referring to God in this way, Peter left no doubt about which God was the father of Jesus. He was the one true God. Since Jesus was the son of God, he was the Messiah, the king over the long-anticipated earthly kingdom. Spoken of 2 Samuel 7, Isaiah 9, Jeremiah 23, Micah 5, 2, and many, many, many other passages. Peter expressed belief that Jesus was both Messiah and God. Jesus had just referred to himself as the son of man, But Peter viewed him as the son of God. So Peter's great confession is that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. But where did Peter get that? Was he just so smart that he figured that out on his own? Now, we know that's not true. Was he just so spiritual? Did he put all the spiritual uh, uh, indicators together? No, we know that's not true, too. Apart from the Spirit of God, we know what happened to Peter later on in the story, right? Where did he come up with this? Well, he didn't come up with it on his own. This great truth came from the architect of the church, God himself. Roman numeral three in your notes. Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter... And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Peter's confession did not come from himself. That would be absolutely impossible. It came from God the Father through the ministry of the Spirit. And once again, you have a Trinitarian formula here. All three members of the the Trinity are involved. Spirit of God is behind the scenes, but he is the one who reveals it from the Father to Peter himself about the nature of the Son. When Jesus calls him Simon Bar Jonah, he does that to emphasize that Peter is flesh and blood. Okay, he's connected to his earthly father, and so it's his way of of saying that uh, you're a mere man. Where'd you get this from? And uh, the he the the phrase flesh and blood. This is a Hebrew idiom for being a mere mortal being. Jesus isn't putting him down per se, but he's simply emphasizing you didn't come up with this. That would be absolutely impossible. Sinful man who is spiritually blind, spiritually deaf, spiritually dead as a post cannot reason his way toward God. Absolutely impossible. If you confess Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God, confessed based because you really truly believe it, you didn't come up with that. You didn't reason your way toward that. God gave you that because man cannot reason his way toward God. God is the self-revealing God. And if he doesn't reveal himself to you, you have absolutely no hope of understanding him on your own because of our our sin. And so that's what's at stake here. He didn't come up with this on his own. God, the father, revealed it to him because God is the architect of the church. He has an eternal plan. And this is part of the carrying out of that plan. But this great foundation is that Christ is the son of the living God. That is the foundation of the church. The church is going to be built on that truth because it's going to be built on him and his work. So when Jesus says, I will build my church, in verse 18, he's identifying himself as the builder of the church. The builder is Jesus Christ. And not even death can stop the construction of the church. The gates of hell or the gates of Hades are a a picture of the entrance into death. And we know that death didn't stop Christ from accomplishing his purposes, and death cannot stop the church from accomplishing its purposes either. Upon this rock, I will build my church. The builder of the church is Jesus. The designer is God. He's the architect. But Christ is the owner of the church. He says, this is my church and he's also the builder of the church. So if you want to continue with the imagery, you could say he's the owner-builder of the church. Now, we know that this verse is also historically controversial because Catholicism historically has said, well, there you go, you see, Peter was the first pope. And um, we know that can't possibly be true for several reasons. Christ was not saying that he would build the church on Peter. He's going to build it on himself, on the fact that he is the Christ, the son of the living God, and so we know that also, and they would have known it, the leaders, if they would have just remembered their Old Testament. Because Psalm 118 says the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And the cornerstone was the, the keystone in the building of a church, the key foundation stone. It was the first one they set. And that cornerstone set the 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 elevation of the building. It set the angle of the building and everything else. It was the first one, the most important one. The psalmist then goes on to say this is the Lord's doing it is marvelous in our eyes this is the day that the Lord has made let us rejoice and be glad in it and again Isaiah 28:16 God through the prophet Isaiah says thus says the Lord God behold I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be put to shame. And so we have also the the statement that God is going to lay this stone, but also don't miss the connection to salvation. Whoever believes. Jesus claimed to be the stone the Old Testament writer spoke of. It wasn't Peter, it was Jesus himself. The last week of his ministry, he's addressing the priests and the Pharisees, the opposition. Of course, in that last week, I mean, they were trying to figure out ways to get him executed any way they could. And he's a few days away from the cross. The hatred of the religious establishment is palpable. And he's teaching in the temple. And he's just told a parable about a landowner who leased his vineyard out to tenants. You may remember that matthew twenty one he gets to verse forty two and Jesus says this Jesus said to them to these leaders now you have to understand these are the spiritual elite these are the teachers the the uh remember it's a theocracy, so they not they weren't just the spiritual leaders, the religious leaders they're also the civil leaders and uh you may not see this for what it is right off the bat, but this is this is Jesus taking out the old hickory uh, baseball bat, spiritually speaking, and just swinging it with both hands and hitting these people right between the headlights, okay? Metaphorically speaking, of course. When he says, have you never read in the scriptures? And guess what he quotes? Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So this stone that you are rejecting is the one who's going to judge you. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they got this part, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. So the spiritually blind, spiritually deaf, spiritually dead as a post, spiritual leaders of the day didn't get who he truly was, but they got he was talking about them when he starts talking about judgment. Peter did not consider himself the foundation of the church. Later on in the book of Acts, Peter says this, after he and John were involved in the healing of a man, they were arrested, they were beaten, and then they were released. But on the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John and Alexander. Now, John and Alexander are members of this uh, hierarchy. It's not John uh, the apostle. And all who were of the high priestly family. Okay, So here you got the the, uh, the, the big wigs of, of the spiritual leadership. And they asked Peter a question concerning this healing of this man. By what power or by what name did you do this? Now they asked, okay? They asked. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead... By him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you. Perfect opportunity for Peter to claim to be the stone, but he doesn't. He points to Jesus. The stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and he's right back to the Old Testament prophecies. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So Peter did not believe that he had any special authority in the church, and he certainly did not think that he was the stone or the rock prophesied in the Old Testament. And clearly, he, he confessed Christ is the stone. And I love the way he did it. Every opportunity he had, he mentions to these leaders and to the Jews, you murdered your own Messiah, but God overruled you and raised him from the dead. That's not very secret sensitive in today's uh, jargon of things. But he did it anyway because he was filled with the Spirit, and it was true. Peter later on in his last letter to the church, writing to Christians who were out in the world undergoing persecution, he says this to them, Put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. And he's just reaching right back to those Old Testament prophecies. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, for it stands in Scripture, and guess what he quotes, Isaiah 28, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, back to Psalm 118, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. An amazing statement. He brings together and shows us both the absolute sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man snuggled right up next to each other in scripture. A stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. Why did they stumble? They disobey the word of God and they're responsible for it as they were destined to do. Amazing. Peter didn't consider himself anything other than a slave of Jesus Christ and any opportunity he had to say anything different, he points to Christ as the rock. The foundation of the church. Even back in that original statement, when when Jesus said he refers to him, he calls him Peter. The word he uses is the stone is the word Greek word for a, a a loose stone, like a stone you could hold in your hand. But when he says, "Upon this rock I will build my church," he uses a different word, a word for a massive outcropping or a boulder. So even the the language of the statement uh, separates the two people, and you can't possibly call him anything other than an apostle for his day. We do not have a succession of popes in the church. We don't even have any succession of apostles in the church. What we do have is a succession of truth. We pass the truth on from generation to generation, not people, okay? So this is the foundation of the church, the revelation came from God the Father, and the revelation is the rock, Christ the church, of the church, the foundation, Christ the Son of the living God, The builder is Jesus Christ. Not even death can stop his plan to build his church. And then that brings us to the residence. Very brief in verse 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. The ESV, which I just read, is somewhat of an unfortunate translation. A better one is found in the New American Standard because what, it's, what he's saying there is, in the uh, grammatical jargon, it's perfect passive. In other words, it looks at an event in the past completed holistically with continuing state or result, but it's also passive. So listen to the New American Standard. This also emphasizes the fact that he's not giving Peter the keys to the church so that he's going to determine who gets in and out of heaven. He's simply saying, you're going to repeat what God has already said is to be true. And so in American standard says, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. It's already done. And Peter, like the rest of the church, is simply to affirm what God has already accomplished. He's not the pope. He's not anything other than an apostle, but he also, in exercising this, is simply doing what every other Christian can do. We affirm what God has already said to be true, or we deny what he says is not true. The authority is with every single believer. And so there we have the builder's plan, the master builder's plan. And uh, I think I'll just stop here and see if there are any questions so far. There's This is, we're moving very quickly. Okay, let's jump right into the master builder's people. By ending with uh, a reference to the people in the church, it just moves us right into the, the master builder's people in Matthew chapter 28. Let's go there. You're going to recognize this, of course, the famous Great Commission, as it's commonly called. And we're moving to this section because this is where Jesus gives this great charge to the church of what he actually wants us to do. And so in Matthew chapter 28... Um what we're going to see, first of all, is, as, as you mentioned, his authority over his people. Now, we know at this stage, he's he's the crucifixion has taken place. He's been buried. And on the first Lord's Day, first day of the week, it says in 28 one. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene, and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And we know what happened there. And um, I'm not going to go through all of that. But what I want to focus on is him telling them. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, look, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So he's telling them, go back, tell the disciples, meet me in Galilee. And which is exactly what they do. And we get to verse 16. It says, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. First thing we see here in this in verse 18 is He is risen from the dead. Undeniable, objectively true. He's risen from the dead. And the second thing we see, he is Lord of the Church. He's Lord of the Church. He already said, I will build my church, right? He builds it, he owns it. This is going to echo Genesis chapter 1. This goes right straight back to Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, as we're going to see. And he has all authority. He has all authority, just like God has all authority, because he is God. And when he says that, he, uh, it, it, it's a statement about who he is, again, based on Peter's confession this whole passage, though, is predicated on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and his resurrection validates or certifies all of his ministry. For example, the Apostle Paul in Romans 1, in his uh, his initial statement to the Roman church, said, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets. So he's reaching back and saying, this is fulfillment of Old Testament prophetic work here, the word of God, through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David, there's fulfillment of the seed promise from the Abrahamic covenant, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Tremendous statement. Again, don't miss the Trinitarian formula there. All members of the Trinity are involved. God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, all of them there. But the key is, for our purposes here, proven to be or, or uh, affirmed to be the Son of God by his resurrection. And as we know, and you've heard over and over again how critical the resurrection is to the rest of Scripture and to validating who Christ is and everything else. So he's risen from the dead, he's Lord of the church, Going straight back to, I will build my church, and he has all authority. Look carefully. All authority where? In heaven and on earth. Go clear back to Genesis 1. God created the heavens and the earth. One of the great um, 20th century scholars, Alva McLean, who did a lot of good work on the kingdom, wrote maybe one of the key four or five top books on the kingdom of God ever written, said that uh, in order to have a kingdom, you have to have the king, or the ruler, you have to have the right to rule, and you have to have the realm to rule over. And you see that right out of the starting blocks in Genesis 1. In the beginning, God, there's a king, created. There's the right to rule. You make it, you own it. And you get to say what happens to it, right? You ladies bake a uh, pie. That's your pie. You made it. It's yours. Your husband comes in and says, oh, a pie, how about it? And you say, uh-uh, my pie, my pie. Okay, now you can have some. You make it, you own it. Now that's a simple illustration, but it's true. God created everything, and He owns it. So when people say, "Well, uh, I'm my own person," I, uh, I, uh, God can't. God still owns you if you're part of creation, and if you are a person, you're part of creation. So He owns you, and the realm, heaven and earth. So when the risen Christ says. All authority has been given to me over heaven and earth. He's saying, I'm here to reclaim what was lost in the fall. And so all authority is given to him. And based on that, he gives this great charge. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Trinitarian formula. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. His command to his people is that we are to make disciples. That's the one command force verb there in that sentence. The other three are, are modifiers. They're participles. They basically tell you how to do it, okay, grammatically speaking. Um, and, but, it, but they even take on the command force of that verb. And so rather, and uh, the best translations obviously say go. It's an imperative. It's a command. And make disciples of all nations. So we're supposed to make disciples how? Go baptize, teach. One of the reasons I believe so strongly in a teaching ministry in a, in a true church, in a real church, is right here. We're commanded to do that. We are to make disciples. We are to go, baptize, and teach. And I, I like this part, teaching them to do what? To observe here in the ESV all that I have commanded, to uh, keep. Basically, it's a, it's a statement of obedience, Right? teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. We are to teach obedience. It doesn't do just to teach what it says. We are also to apply it and encourage people and to teach obedience. I've always thought that would be a pretty good name for a brand-new church. Obedience Bible Fellowship. How would that go over? <laughs> ah, maybe not. But you say, well, we're a great commission church. Okay, give it a good great commission name then. Obedience Baptist, you know. First <laughs> Obedience Baptist. Might be the last obedience Baptist. I don't know. I think that's a pretty good name, but that's just me. But that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to teach, and we're supposed to teach obedience. Teach what? All I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. His promises to his people is that he will be with us. We have his presence We have his presence by the power of the indwelling spirit. And we're going to see that next time as we move into the book of Acts and we see the church and the spirit coming down and empowering the church to be his witnesses. And that same spirit who provides power also guarantees our perseverance. So we have his presence, we have his power, and we have his perseverance. We will persevere to the end. Death can't stop that. If your trust is in Jesus Christ, that rock You will persevere. You will be in heaven with him someday. He guarantees it, and it's guaranteed by his resurrection. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.